Um, but the main thing is it's right very near the path of some of the big vessels. So the facial artery might be fairly close to that. And, and as we said, in terms of angle of entry, if you're angled slightly because you're standing at that side of the bed, as your needle goes deeper, it's getting closer and closer to the infraorbital foramen. Welcome to the Aesthetics Mastery Show. I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Hi, I'm Ryder Pierce. And today we're doing an analysis of a critical event that happened in the USA about 10 years ago to my colleague, Julie Bass Kaplan. So we're going to look at those events that we covered last week and see what we can take to make all of us safer by analyzing the risk at every stage along that process so that we can all understand complications better, get better at diagnosing them, better at treating them and keep our patients safer. So give us a quick recap of what we went over last week. So Julie unfortunately suffered a blockage of her infraorbital artery on a training day using Radies. Calcium hydroxyapatite was injected into her infraorbital artery, which included the blood supply to her cheek and caused a significant injury and scarring, um, which we're going to break down in some detail now. So what were the risk factors that you think were present in this case? So the most obvious risk to me looking at this from the start was the use of a non-reversible product. So I actually think there are cases when the non-reversible products are superior, and particularly if you have a, a patient who's allergic to hyaluronic acid, you may choose to use a non-reversible product. But it's very important to take on board that they are a significant step up in risk. If you deal with a patient who has a vascular occlusion with a hyaluronic acid, it's still a high-stakes scenario. It's very stressful. They often end up in necrosis anyway. But that same situation applied to a non-reversal product, and it is just far, far worse, as we'll see. So the first, the first element of risk is, are we using the best product from a risk profile point of view for each patient? And I'm not saying that we should never use non-reversible, but I am saying we probably should hardly ever use non-reversible products because you'd need a very niche reason to justify a product that lasts you know, a year to 18 months, but non-reversible when we already have products that last that long that are reversible. So what's actually in that product? So Radies is made of calcium hydroxyapatite. It's actually the same compound as in our teeth. So it's white um, when you see it injected. And it works by being causing immediate filling effects, but also a delayed uh, it, reaction to that product that causes the laying down of collagen. So it does have a very long-lasting effect, and that's nice. Um, and it's an effective filler, with the exception that you just can't reverse it. That's the downside. What were the other risk factors? So there are a number of things about the injection technique, and I will stress, and Julie said this as well, that times have changed, and this at the time won't seem as obviously bad as it might to us now. Um, but one of the things was you, if you're using a product that is as thick as Radies or calcium hydroxyapatite in general, it simply will not aspirate. There is, it's like concrete. Once it's in the needle, you will never get any product back out of it. Um, now, I suppose you could use a non-primed needle, but I doubt in those days aspiration wasn't spoken about as much. There probably was no aspiration either. Um, the other thing about it is being quite a thick product, I remember from using it myself, it requires quite a high degree of extrusion force. And I remember sensing that this was a, something that took away some of my control. So as I'm injecting, you want it to go in, nothing's happening, you're squeezing harder, and then suddenly it gives. So I, I never liked that about that particular product. It's, it's like an inertia with the product. Um, of course, hyalase doesn't work as the key one, which we've covered already. Um, the next thing that might be relevant is the instrument. Now, this I don't believe was the case in Julie's case because she says it was a three-quarter needle, which is similar to what we already use, three-quarter inch. Um, but I know that sometimes that product and some of these products come with longer needles. 
And, and as I touched on last time, I think that multiplies inaccuracy. So if you're injecting quite a thick, fleshy part of the face, um, remember what every injector is doing as they put the needle in is they're mentally projecting where that needle is going. And the further, the deeper it goes in, the longer the needle, the greater the room for error. And I certainly, having trained thousands of clinicians, you quite often will find clinicians at different stages have different levels of accuracy and they think it's in one place. This happens a lot with cannulas, but it turns out it's actually in a considerably different place. So we need to be maximizing the resolution of our, our anatomical knowledge, but we also need to be being certain that our instruments improve our accuracy. So a long needle with a slight angle could end up placing that filler three, four, seven millimeters closer to the artery you're trying to avoid with it, with it looking fairly similar to the to the injector. So short needles are probably safer. That's one more potential risk factor we could take from this case. I think you mentioned last week that it wasn't just the filler that they were using. Something else was mixed? Yeah, so there's also risk in what they chose to mix the products with. So the intention with mixing lidocaine and, and adrenaline with calcium hydroxyapatite is firstly, it does decrease the extrusion force requires. It becomes a bit easier to inject. Um, but also it's it holds the pain relief in place. So the lidocaine will make the procedure more comfortable and the adrenaline causes vasoconstriction so that it isn't washed away. And that's all done with the intention of benefiting the patient. Now, the big issue that happened in, in Julie's case, and it would happen with anyone who's using adrenaline, is that it confused the diagnosis. So at the point where she first identified Pala, both her and the clinician diagnosed the, that adrenaline was the cause of this and that given time it would go back to normal. And this is that, that sort of clinical uncertainty is something I, I always say with many of the treatments, like if you can keep it simple, keep it simple. And the more, the more hard you try to be fancy and come up with new ways of doing things and, addition, and adding more drugs into the situation, actually more often it, it can in certain circumstances increase the risk level. And I think there's a beautiful example of that because um, it really did change the course of events. And maybe not to the point where it would have avoided a scar because we have a non-reversible product. But if you were using a reversible product and you used adrenaline, it might actually make an injury occur where you actually would have dissolved it if you got the diagnosis right. And how about the lidocaine? Did that increase the risk? Yeah, I think you could argue that lidocaine, because of the numbing effect combined with the adrenaline, is that that was the reason that Julie had no pain for the first six hours. Mm. So um, probably with an occlusion like that, you'd probably get pain closer to two hours. And particularly if you're dealing with a hyaluronic acid product, that gives you a bit more time to solve the problem. Once again, I don't think it necessarily would have changed the course of events with a non-reversible product, but most of us using reversible products should know that, that unfortunately, there, there is a downside to these more comfortable products, which is potentially hiding the, one of the signs of, of a necrotic wound developing. What about if you go for a dental block with a normal hyaluronic acid, lidocaine-based product? If you're blocking the whole area, is that also going to mask that important sign of an occlusion? Yes, Absolutely. Uh, I think it's worth thinking about. But the benefit with lidocaine without adrenaline is it's not going to last as long. Okay. So it's the combination of lidocaine and adrenaline that gives you such a long period of time with numbing. How about the technique, the actual injection? Did that add to the risk? Well, when we look at the injection point, which Julie has actually photographed, you can see that the entry point is a little bit inferior and medial to the angle of the zygoma. It's just parallel almost with the ailer of the nose. Um, that That is not in a place where I would normally inject. Uh, it's firstly in a place that usually has relatively good volume. Um, so the aesthetic indication is not normally something I would see, but there are patients who need volume there. 
Um, but the main thing is it's right very near the path of some of the big vessels. So the facial artery might be fairly close to that. And, and as we said, in terms of angle of entry, if you're angled slightly because you're standing at that side of the bed, as your needle goes deeper, it's getting closer and closer to the infraorbital foramen, which is where this artery is. And of course, the branches actually come out from the infraorbital artery uh, foramen. It's not just in the foramen. You will have little vessels on either side of it. And it's probably that that happened, that we're, that we're just um, lateral to the infraorbital artery exit point, but one of the branches is still in the way of the needle, and that's what got blocked by the injection. So I'd say the angle of entry, the position of of that entry point are both risk factors. And the next major risk factor is that 0.75 mils was injected in one injection. So it's worth remembering that if you're safe and you inject a reasonable amount of product, then you can get away with it. But it's it doesn't necessarily decrease the frequency of vascular occlusion injecting smaller amounts, but it will decrease the severity of vascular occlusions. And this is a point that's quite hard for people to understand. It's a bit like that with cannulas as well, is that cannulas decrease the frequency of occlusion, but they probably increase the severity of vascular occlusion. Because when they do happen, though more rare, it's more severe. And the same thing is happening with larger volumes of product, which is you can argue that there's less le less frequent occlusions because you're doing fewer injections, but if you do block it, much bigger problem. What about the actual setup on the day? Because I'm sensing that with it being a training environment, that probably added to the risk. Yeah, I think there's a few important points to make about the training environment and the, effectively a sales environment. When you're being trained by the manufacturer, it's worth remembering they are trying to convince me to use their product. And there's nothing, I'm not against salespeople, you know, we sell stuff. There's nothing wrong with selling, but you've got to interpret the information within that context and keep your keep your um, a healthy degree of skepticism to what you're hearing. Um, because what I realized uh, being trained with products that I no longer believe in is that they they have a good answer for all of your anxieties. So if you say it's not reversible, then they might say, I think in Julie's case, there was a phrase of it's a one in a million chance. So you might ask a sensible question and the data isn't there yet and they will this is well known that that i think i'm not saying all drug companies do this but it happens that you you pick the best data to support what you would like people to believe um not necessarily the truth so um and that slant can make you f believe in a product a little bit more than you should and uh, it's just worth with a new product any new thing that comes out remember that they're not really presenting you data. And you might also have your own reasons to want to believe in the product. I remember being being sold on the fact that it was cheaper. I remember, you know, you don't need as much product and it's cheaper to buy this particular fella. And uh, yes, it's non-reversible, but um, those things did appeal to, to me when I was starting out. And it's just worth, it's worth accepting that about yourself, that we all have different agendas. But when you see a case like this, you can ground yourself in what really matters, which is safety. And sometimes it's the upset, that emotional component that enables you to, to push out those other thoughts. Mm. How about the relationship between the three people in the room? Julie herself was a nurse being injected at this case. She was being injected by another nurse who was being trained by the drug rep or, or someone representing the drug company. Who's responsible? Well, this is actually a problem that comes up and I've seen it come up in the UK a few times as well. And I think the belief often when you're at a training day, with a, particularly with a big manufacturer, and there have been two events in the UK involving two of the biggest names you can imagine uh, where the same things happened. So um, essentially, if you're at a training day and you bring a model with you for treatment and you're injecting, 
you may feel like you're under the wing of a protective organization, but the truth is you're not. It's your patient and it's actually your problem. So, um, and the, I've seen people fall through the net because often these people being trained have only been in the sector for three months. You know, they're not exactly experienced and all of a sudden they're dealing with a, a complicated vascular occlusion. So it's just worth having that on your radar and and thinking about that situation differently because they're not necessarily going to look after your patient just because it was their training day. Um, so that's the first thing to understand. Now, I think in Julie's case, she documents this quite well. There, there was a general sense of um, off you go to go and find some help, but we, we're actually not going to be involved in the aftercare. Um, and even worse, there was a sense that she shouldn't talk to the injector. So that that idea that to protect them legally, the, the less they say, the better was part of the of the dynamic which Julie recounts. Um, so that's her account of it. I, I obviously wasn't there. Um, and that's I think it's quite common when people get defensive. They, they want to retract and make sure they don't make matters worse. And actually, I think it, the retraction and the defensiveness often does make matters worse. Mm. And I think that the experiences that we've heard about in the UK, thank God there was a really nice KOL who was willing to actually after hours and, you know, and really, really help. But that's a lucky thing. Actually, the responsibility was still with the clinician who'd brought their model. Yeah, the problem is, is the delay that you may be able to find a KOL in that company who doesn't mind taking on that risk. Um, but it's an hour and a half, two hours later, three, you know, a day later. Um, it's not a system. I think I just yeah. want to make it clear that you're not you're not bought into a safe system. You are you are the system as the injecting clinician to go and find the help, and and that's that's worth knowing. Now, the, I will say that in our training school, if we had a complication with a model, I effectively see them as my patients. I think maybe one of the key things is who sourced the patient. This mm. is certainly a big a big part of that. Um, but they. The cases I've seen at training days, I don't know who sourced the patient, but it, they have effectively said, you injected, you need to look after. Um, so just, I, I'm not saying everyone's going to behave in the same way or have the same rules, but maybe it's worth it's worth asking that question. If I have a complication with the person I inject, who who's responsible? It's probably a good question before you go to these events. One more thing I will add as well, of course, there are a significantly disproportionate number of people, I think, injured at training events because it's an odd situation. Um, it's not just that that you're new to it, the procedure that you're doing. You're also following someone else's instructions. And I've many times when I observe people injecting, they just get the wrong, the, the, their wires crossed with something that you've said and they, they proceed to do something almost thoughtlessly. Like the kind of thing you would never do if you were by yourself injecting, but you've misheard someone or, or misinterpreted it and they start to do something that's actually a bit crazy. So um, this did not happen on this event, by the way. Um, we're talking about with Julie, but it's worth knowing that you're at a p potentially much higher risk in those in those times when you're being instructed by someone. So what did you learn from this case? Um, there's so much learning in this case. Probably one of the most useful things for our viewers is just to see those stages of necrosis spelled out so that you can actually get a visual clue as to what to expect if one of your patients was to be in this situation. Um, the stages that you should know are, first of all, there's blanching. So with an occlusion, the first sign is normally blanching. So you haven't got capillary blood flow, the skin goes pale, and you should see that early on. The next stage after that is levido reticularis. This is this mottled pattern where you see a pale area where there's no longer fresh blood coming into the skin. And then surrounding that pale area, there is the levido color caused by deoxygenated blood that builds up in the tissues. And when you put that pattern together, you effectively get a net-like pattern. And that's, um, that's often called mottling as well and it's that mottled sign that's often there for the you know a short period after the initial occlusion but it doesn't last forever 
Um, and then you'll see that um, usually 24, 36, 72 hours later, you start to get pustule formation. That's the third phase. Now, by this stage, um, you're quite a long way along the process. Uh, it may help reversing it, but it's hard to know for sure how much benefit you're going to get. Most clinicians would still do something in those early stages. And it's often confused with herpes infection. The, the biggest way of telling them apart is, has is it on normal skin or is it on the lip? Because I seem to everyone seems to diagnose herpes on normal skin, which is actually quite rare. Um, and I think it's because they don't want to face the reality of what the problem could be. So make sure that you're differentiating those two. And I would say herpes is, is a diagnosis of exclusion. That means you only diagnose that once you've ruled out a vascular occlusion. You don't go straight to herpes diagnosis um, So because that's the safest thing to do. Stage four is the coagulation phase of necrosis. And you can see the proteins, effectively, they, they denature. The skin looks dry and, and effectively quite non-reflective. Um, the skin starts to solidify. It, you start to get black areas in some areas and there may be bleeding underneath. So you get a bit more color coming to, to the wound, but it's a kind of dull color with blood underneath dead tissue. Stage five is skin breakdown. And this is where you get the sloughing off of tissue. Effectively, there are enzymes within the skin cells. That as they're released, they start to break down the collagen and elastin, the big molecules in the skin, and it starts to liquefy and slough off. And um, that's the end of the necrotic phase. So what did you make of the signs and symptoms in Judy's case? Well, it was quite clear looking back what was going on. Um, not all of it's entirely textbook. So, for example, the levita reticularis, which people often talk about, um, not the best example of that. And the, really, the thing I take from that is it's really important in your own mind to have a hierarchy of diagnostic criteria because the goal is not that you only diagnose a vascular occlusion if they've got levita reticularis. Um, you need to find out what the most important thing, and one of my catchphrases is capillary refill is king. It's very hard to diagnose a picture that someone sends to you as a, as a vascular occlusion. You can diagnose necrosis that way probably, but by that point it's too late. Um, you really need capillary refill. So I'll emphasize that again, can't say it enough. That is a good indication of what the blood flow is like. And, and the other things are correlated with a decrease in blood flow, but they're not always present and they're not always reliable and they're not always obvious on photographs. So that diagnostic hierarchy is quite an important point to take from this case. What about the human side of Julie's story? Because she's very kindly shared it with us and it adds an extra dimension. It's such an important part of a vascular occlusion case to remember what the human underneath this dying tissue is going through because it isn't just about the anatomy and it's not just about the, the stages, which we so often want to focus on learning about. There's a human who starts out optimistic about having a treatment and ends up going through one of the worst things that you can go through, which is literally seeing yourself develop a scar and losing your identity, you know, temporarily, uh, thinking you're going to become something else, you know, become ugly, I think Julie said, uh, that people may not love you anymore, that they may judge you. Now, these things are important to know for the injector, because when I support people with vascular occlusions, that there are different stages that I've observed as well. And Julie articulated them brilliantly in, in her interview. They are the stages of grief. Now, I, I've seen patients initially being incredibly kind and supportive and say it's not your fault and I understand. And then they almost always transition to anger at some point. And it's useful to know that because your patients who you go to A&E with to help, and, and this happens with injectors all the time, they do their absolute best to rectify things. But if they still end up with an injury, they're not going to be your best friend at the end of it. I mean, it's some might, but don't expect that to be normal. And that is, it's worth knowing that so that you can prepare for it. 
I still think you should be their best friend for as long as possible. That would be my approach. There may be some medical risk in that, but I think it's better as a general rule to to meet these challenges with love rather than defensiveness. Mm. Um, and there are many cases where that will actually improve the outcome. And, and there, you know, it may make things better for everyone just to feel like they weren't treated like an enemy just because they got an injury, because that's what it feels like when the person who injected you suddenly cuts you off mm-hmm. because they're afraid. So um, understand those stages. Um, it's well worth watching Julie's interview because you can see the emotions are still raw in terms of how it affected her. Um, but she's got all the way through the journey to acceptance. She actually decided not to sue her injector as well um, out of a realization that she didn't want that negativity in her life. And mm. I, I thought that was incredibly wise because it's almost like the thing to do. Yeah. And um, And instead she made a choice about how she wanted to spend her time. And she has, by reaching acceptance... She has channeled the energy, the negative energy that's in that into good. And now she educates people. You should follow her page. We would have linked that in the last two um, notes as well. And she's out there preventing other patients having the same issues. And that's what the I think is amazing about humans so often is that they, they take the worst day of their life and they can either use that to harbor resentment or what actually happens more often than not is they start to use that as fuel to drive away from that pain and make things better. So mm. that that is a wonderful journey if you can go all the way through that. Um, But from an injector's point of view, I think you just need to realize that the emotions are not going to stay the same on the day that you last saw them. They're going to progress while you're not with them and they may may not always be your best friend. A beautiful legacy she's created. It really is. Totally. And she gave it an empowering meaning. So give us a summary take home that you take from this case. Well, there's so much in the medical story, so the physical story, seeing seeing the process of of this awful event unfolding physically, there's learning in it, the stages, you know, analyzing how you can reduce the risk uh, has been um, intellectually interesting and valuable. Um, I think the emotional stories, are also there's a lot of wisdom in that, just knowing how these things are going to play out and how they could affect um, you as an injector. Uh, you know, Julie mentioned that she felt depressed. I'm sure her injector felt depressed you know, it's a it's a very stressful situation and understanding that's important. Probably the most uplifting part of it is the internal transformation that Julie had. So she had her external transformation. She lived with a scar. She asked questions about how her husband would respond and, and who she was going to be in the future. And that were deeply unsettling and traumatic for her. But she, she somehow reached the point where she's actually made it into a, a, a benefit for everyone else. You know, it's that that realization that you she still carries pain and trauma about that situation but she's projecting some light instead of the you know the darkness that she was once in I, I think that's the most the most uplifting part of it and she's gone on to thrive in her own aesthetics career hasn't she she must be so much safer now i mean yeah. she wasn't unsafe before it wasn't her injecting but you know i just think to use that in your own career is wonderful legacy as well yeah absolutely so do make sure that you follow Julie Bass Kaplan. She's an aesthetic nurse trainer based in California. You can follow her on Instagram as uh, Jubilant Julie and tell her I sent you. And we will link below in the description a link through to Tim's interview that he did with her so that you can hear it from the horse's mouth as well. And thank you very much for watching. Please do drop us a like and we'd love to have you subscribe as well. Hit the bell for notifications so you know when we upload our next show. Thanks for watching. Take care.